Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But in the meantime, I'm your host, Josh, and welcome to this morning's morning commute. Today is the 19th of February, 2022. I believe, uh, and I hope everyone is doing well. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, feel free to let me know what you think of the show. Uh, there's a few ways you can do that. You can DM me on social media, or you can email me in defense of liberation at gmail.com. Uh, for those of you who are tuning back in, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the show, but without further ado, I got a bit I'd like to talk about, so let's get into it. We're going to talk about the ongoing intensification and militarization around the world. Um, We're going to talk about imperialism. We're going to talk about racism. And we're going to talk about organizing, as always. So I made a TikTok video because I'm a nerd. And uh, I put that up. And it was about, like, you know, why we shouldn't go to war with Russia from a few weeks ago, the beginning of February. And, uh... It was funny because when I first posted it, maybe five minutes later, I went to share it with someone and it was already under review uh, by TikTok. Uh, They ended up keeping it up, which I was genuinely surprised by. I went and looked back at uh, my account and uh, I was surprised to see that it, you know, had got some viewership. Like I was surprised it was still up, but A lot of people didn't like that video. A lot of people on TikTok got mad at me and said that, no, in fact, we should be going to war with Russia for, you know, a plethora of different reasons. But, you know, of course, on TikTok, what it actually normally amounts to is just individual attacks. Um, So a lot of people called me stupid. A lot of people said, you know, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Um, Some people were trying to explain to me why imperialism is good for Americans and for white folks. And, you know... That shit never ceases to amaze me that you go on a public forum, essentially, a public, you know, social media space, and you just put that bigotry out there. You know that there has to be a foundation. You know there has to be a system and structures and a whole society set up to benefit people who are racist. Otherwise, that shit would not fly. You wouldn't see fucking corny-ass white people putting some racist-ass shit on TikTok if people weren't out here you know, being protected by that stuff, if people weren't out here benefiting from that kind of mindset, and, uh, you especially wouldn't see it if every kind, every time some folks, you know, wanted to run their mouth like that, they got clocked the way that they, you know, should, but, um, I wanted to talk about that on here, and talk about some of the other geopolitical situations we're seeing in Africa, in Asia, And in Latin America, as well as the Caribbean, to try to, you know, connect some dots here for folks and maybe help us to see the big picture, help us to see what it is that we need to be doing, how we need to be helping. Um, But before we get into that, I want to give us a good foundation to go off on. So starting first with a definition and a historical discussion on imperialism. Imperialism is when capitalism reaches a certain stage of monopoly, which therein leads to an export of not only productive and commodified things, I guess I said that wrong, but It's not necessarily that folks are exporting, you know, products and commodities, but now they are exporting capital. Capital, which is used to ensnare and enslave developing nations across the world. But imperialism also is an attempt by which a, you know, ruling class, government, state, country, etc., comes in and takes over the internal affairs, resources, economy, industry, production, etc., as well as the land, the labor force, 
and the social, legal, and political characteristics of that society and mashes them, melds them, molds them into exactly what it is that the imperialist country wants or needs for its continued exploitation and super exploitation of formerly colonized and currently imperialized nations. Imperialism developed historically at a certain stage where the monopoly capitalism that existed in Europe, Russia, and North America reached a point of competition, super exploitation, and again, finance capital. So this historical epoch came out of a necessity to continue the oppression and super exploitation of oppressed and super exploited people by their oppressors, right? So we have different forms of this oppression, different forms of this exploitation throughout history. After a certain period of time of these relationships being in existence, resistance is built. Not only is resistance built, but reaction to that resistance is built. Therein leading to new developments, new subterfuges, new state apparatuses that are meant to control, uh, divide, conquer, and further exploit and oppress those who have gone on being exploited and oppressed. So now that we have that foundation to go on, let's look at the geopolitical situation that is occurring on the Ukrainian border, in Eastern Europe, in the South China Sea, in Taiwan, in Latin America, Africa, and Asia generally. But let's start with Russia. Now, Russia has, you know, a long history of uh, being in the target of U.S. empire. We know why. The Russians had a successful revolution that overthrew their capitalist and bourgeois dictatorship and built a society for and by the people based on egalitarianism, socialism, equity, and popular dictatorship of the proletarian class. Now, this is inherently in contradiction to the capitalist and imperialist system that the United States... Europe and other capitalist and imperialist powers have put forward, have developed, and have ensnared the world with. Meaning that the simplest trade union mobilization or the most, you know, uncovered and unreported on uh, protest or strike still receives oftentimes the full brutal retaliatory force of the state and its armies so as to put down any and all resistance to the capitalist and imperialist system. Why? Not necessarily because they believe that, you know, each and every resistance movement, each and every strike, or each and every unionization effort is going to overthrow the capitalist and imperialist system. But what they do know is that each and every further development by the working class to build a resistance movement further eliminates the propagandized notion that these forms of oppression ought to be upheld and as you know capitalists normally put forward that this system is natural that things like social darwinism right are capable of explaining why it is that so many people go with so little while so few people live with so much. Um, That relationship of exploitation, of thievery, of abuse and repression, as well as oppression, 
has allowed for 500 years the ruling class powers, the Europeans, the Americans, the Australians, the Germans, and plenty of others, even the Russians during their imperialist time, during, you know, the czarist uh, autocracy. For these ruling class governments and structures to steal and pillage everything that the workers and the exploited people have and to build up a society where their exploitation and oppression is the foundation, is the mechanism, the machine by which society moves forward. The Russophobia that exists here as well as across the world is intentional. The United Nations, the League of Nations, NATO, and plenty of other military pacts have formed, disbanded, and reorganized themselves for the purpose of maintaining capitalist and imperialist hegemony, which means, you know, essentially global rule without uh, constant violence and force, but a force which is underlined and underwritten by potential violence, which does not allow, again, for any form of resistance. These different military pacts that were started by the imperialists were started for the purpose of continuing imperialism and continuing the plunder of the globe for the benefit of the imperialists. The imperialists uh, do not exist in one form. They do not exist in one place. They do not exist in one time. And they do not exist for one singular purpose. It can be boiled down to a general purpose, which is, again, the continued oppression and exploitation of workers and non-workers for the benefit of the ruling class. But more so than this, they also want to maintain the ability to say that socialism is evil, socialism leads to poverty, socialism leads to genocide and massacres and death and purges and all this stuff. Uh, Socialism, you know, is what causes all the problems that the Russian people are suffering, that the Chinese people are suffering, that the Vietnamese people are suffering, that the Cuban people are suffering. Not the ensnarement and encirclement of capitalism and imperialism on the borders of countries uh, where people themselves, not million and billion dollar corporations, militaries, and governments, but the masses of people themselves are trying to rise up and build a society for themselves where each and every person within that society has some guarantee that you and I do not in the wealthiest country in the world that things like healthcare, housing, income, safety, etc. are all human rights and will be maintained through a socialist project that divests funds and power away from uh, greed and selfishness and capitalist production and instead gives it to the people and programs and organizations for the people. And we really got to investigate this question of, okay, If socialism and communism do not work and supposedly just lead to poverty, why is it right now in Cuba over 98%, if not all of their population is vaccinated, has regular doctor's checkups with neighborhood doctors who know you and your neighbors and your family since childbirth, Why is it that people in Nicaragua and in Bolivia and in Venezuela have a more likely opportunity that if and when they lose their job 
if and when they lose their ability to support themselves and their family, that government programs or organizations will step in and give assistance. That is not something that is very common here in the United States. And if and when assistance is common, we have to remember and really point out that the forms of assistance are temporary Uh, They are often insufficient in way of funds and protection from once those government programs run out, falling back into the very same situation that people were in now without the ability to apply for assistance because they were within a certain period of time receiving assistance already. You know, for example, my mom is physically and mentally disabled. She can't work. Um... And so whenever there is, you know, issues with her housing or, you know, her social security check is not the same amount, um, that's a huge fucking problem, right? And if and when these programs essentially run dry or if and when the directors in charge of these assistance programs continue to walk the path of eugenics and, you know, inhumanity, we will continue to see that there is really only so much that these assistance programs and nonprofits, non-government organizations are not only capable, but also willing to commit to. Because any and all extra money that is siphoned out for the people gets siphoned out of the bonuses and the uh, you know paychecks and the salaries of the ruling class officials who believe that since they have been born and lived a wealthy life that therein that is their deserved reality and anyone who dare try to take that away from them is evil. In Russia, okay, coming back to the the geopolitical talks, in Russia, there is no longer a socialist government or structure. But knowing that in Russia... Historically, people have lived uh, a socialist life. They have been provided food, jobs, clothing, housing, childcare, education, news, and everything else under the sun. Not because they had the wealth, not because they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps, but because the Russian people themselves realize that the only way that they can actually resolve the issues that the Russian people as a population were suffering from was to overthrow their autocracy, to overthrow the petty bourgeois uh, constituent assembly, to overthrow the uh, capitalist and, uh, you know, petty bourgeois uh, government of the February Revolution and to put in place the people and, you know, those who are suffering the most to administrate, control, and govern in the way in which oppressed and exploited people need. Because it is only exploited and oppressed people that will and know how to resolve the contradictions, conflicts, and issues which oppressed and exploited people are facing. Russia is also trying to develop new forms of energy, such as the, um, oh, there's a pipeline, and I should know the name of it, but essentially the natural gas that is going to come through, they want to sell it to Germany, they want to sell it to China, they want to sell it to, I think, I think they want to sell it to other countries in Asia as well. But essentially, the United States is pissed, right? Because, you know, they just had to duck out of Afghanistan uh, after 20 years. They've had to switch to more covert operations in the sense that they're not necessarily boots on the ground stealing oil uh, in the 
West Asia, North Africa region as they normally have. They're stealing it from elsewhere and they're stealing it from there differently. But they're not just, you know, with a bunch of oil tankers with soldiers down there stealing from the oil fields like they normally do. However, this has been reported in Venezuela. This has been reported in Palestine. This has been reported in Afghanistan. This has been reported in Libya. This has been reported in plenty of places where American soldiers have touched down. In connecting that point, Russia also has been able to develop, because of its socialist project that once existed, um, and has been able to develop the former Soviet states to a certain level where, you know, pure desperation, poverty, and suffering does not just continue. So when the United States comes in and tries to tell, you know, the administration of Vladimir Putin and the people of Russia that, listen, uh, you guys are evil, you're dictators, you're trying to come in and destroy the Ukraine, we're going to come over and we're going to take control and we're going to enslave you and we're going to destroy the Ukraine. But, you know, we're the United States, so we're good because we're capitalists. We're not evil, evil Russians, which they can't even call the Russian socialists anymore, which is funny because now it, it shows that really what was behind it all was just ethnic, you know, bigotry and national bigotry. But the United States, right, is trying to paint this picture of Russia that is not true, right? Russia is not going to invade. Russia will fight defensively as every sovereign state has the right to do and every person has the right to do. But Russia cannot be said to be the aggressor in this conflict. Russia is is thousands of miles away just doing Russia, you know? And I don't agree with everything the Putin government does. I don't agree with everything that's happening in Russia. I don't think the Russian people are given a fair and square deal. Um, and the homie Henry Huckamaki from Guerrilla History Podcast, uh, his significant other and plenty of other people can speak to that better than I can. But what I do think is that it is not U.S. empire's right, nor is it the U.S. military or U.S. citizens' right to expect that by committing imperialist acts against Russia, that they are not the aggressors, that they are not the reason why these conflicts continue, and that they are not the reason why Ukrainian, Russian, German, Polish, Hungarian, and other people, Romanian soldiers, people, and human beings might die It's the United States empire's fault. It's capitalism's fault. It's because capitalism naturally develops to a point of monopoly capitalism, which leads towards finance capital and the export of, you know, uh, loans and things of that nature, which therein develop an imperialist structure, which has to be supported by continued hyper-militarization so as to defend what is already stolen and to go to other countries and steal more. That is what empire exists to do. All the way back to the Roman Empire, it's the same thing, just in a different form happening today. Capitalism and imperialism are sewn at the hip, and both of them must be eradicated. Russia isn't going to go to war of its own accord. Russia isn't going to fight because Russia wants to go to war. Russia will defend itself if need be because the United States is an empire and an imperial dictatorship of the ruling class, the military powers, the corporations, and the banks, which are intent on overthrowing each and every sovereign nation so as to get ownership of the wealth, land, labor force, and resources that is available across the globe. So now in shifting from Russia, which we must finish by saying, I, Josh, demand that you, me, and everybody else that can go out and push the the notion that we do not need war with Russia, we do not need international war of any kind, we do not need Russian people to die, we do not need Ukrainian people to die, we do not need uh, American or, you know, uh, Romanian or Polish or German people to die, 
We do not need anyone to die because who always dies in these wars is the poor and exploited people. What Lenin called peasants in uniforms are what we call soldiers today. Soldiers are just poor and exploited people who put on a uniform, were given a gun, and told if you want a college education, you got to go over there and you got to kill people. That's what the U.S. empire expects and exists to uh, purport and to continue doing and until we within the belly of the beast and across the world uh, mount up a mobilization and an organization capable of overthrowing that empire it will continue because speaking logically imperialism can only be maintained by further imperialization and colonialization And so, therefore, imperialism will continue as imperialism always has until imperialism is eliminated from the face of the earth. And that's up to you and me to do. So, no war with Russia. We got that point down. We don't need war with Russia. You don't got beef with Russian people. I don't got beef with Russian people. You got beef with Putin? Good luck. You know, you know, hopefully the KGB don't... No, I'm playing. If If you understand that, in fact, the beef is between ruling class governments and work towards using those contradictions to overthrow those ruling class governments in their weakest point where they are at conflict, we will be following somewhat of the same formula that the Russians and the revolution of 1917 in October slash November did. And so, you know, that should and would make me very proud. So let's maybe do that, you know? But anyways, again, in connecting this point to the broader geopolitical uh, structure and uh, ongoing struggles, let's talk about China. Let's talk about the global south. (coughs) Let's talk about um, racism a little bit because I think it's important. It's Black History Month. You know, I really haven't had the time or the ability to get on here and do a real good episode about that. So I hope I'll do that before the end of the month. Um, But as a white person, you know, not for nothing, I never know what is uh, for me to speak on. I never know how much is okay for me to speak on. And uh, so, you know, I'd love to have guests on here. I'd love to invite people on here who want to talk about some of the history and some of the uh, people and some of the projects that have uh, come from Africa, come from black folks, come from uh, people who oftentimes are still just as exploited and oppressed as they always have been simply because of the color of their skin and what that means to the person who seems to be offended and upset by that skin color but anyways yeah so you know black history month we got to do an episode on it let me know what we need to talk about i want to talk about fred hampton i want to talk about paul robeson i want to talk about folks like gerald horn and james early today i want to talk about um you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, Harry Haywood. I want to talk about also, uh, you know, Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Toure, um, Emil Carr Cabral, Asada Shakur, Angela Davis, and uh, plenty of others who, you know, I think really do not ever, ever, ever uh, make their way as Marx, Engels, Lenin, Mao, and Stalin do into discussions uh as they should so yeah let's uh let's move on to that here uh connecting some dots so with the beijing olympics the pandemic and the global economic and environmental crises that continue to this day i believe that it is of the utmost importance that we speak to the uh, Chinese uh, socialist project and that we speak to also our necessity to defend Chinese people's human and sovereign right to develop and design their societies as they see fit rather than as many of my leftist, socialist, and communist comrades and friends seem to uh, get confused about and think that because we ourselves have some ideological purity 
that we know better than one billion plus people who have for the past 80 years been developing and building a society against the ever-growing threat of invasion, assassination, militarization, and nuclear warfare. The nuclear bomb was not just dropped so as to end World War II. The atom bomb was not just dropped to scare the shit out of the Soviet Union. The atom bomb was dropped miles away from China. Now, I know that speaking historically, it might be said that, no, the atom bomb had nothing to do with the revolution and the movements that were happening in China. But if you look at the central intelligence agencies, the OSS and the uh, other forms of intelligence that existed in the 30s and the 40s, the United States had uh, you know, agents in China who knew that the communists, even against the long march, even against constant repression by the uh, KMT, the Kuomintang, and Chiang Kai-shek, even against imperialist Japan, were continuing to revive themselves, continuing to regain strength, continuing to connect with the masses, and being able to build their forces. It was not as if the United States had no interest or no reason to use the atom bomb for multiple scare tactics. And, you know, I think that in my own studies about uh, the, you know, Chinese revolution uh, from early 1911 all the way through to the announcement of the People's Republic of China in 1949, I believe that throughout that entire time, and even back so far as the Boxer Rebellion, as John Potash shows in his book and documentary, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the U.S. empire was already beginning to grow its imperialist tentacles and making its way in to feudal China during the Opium Wars, to assist the British who enslaved the Chinese people with drug addiction, with forced labor, and with sexual trafficking. And then came in and continued to give assistance to different feudal lords, different uh, governments that were anti-communist, and especially just about anyone who they didn't think was going to lead a communist revolution. So my, the point that I'm trying to make here is that uh, not only has uh, Russophobia been an endemic issue throughout U.S. history, but so has Sinophobia. We know in the beginning of the pandemic and still now there is an increase in hate crimes and violence committed against Asian people that is based in a Sinophobia and a fear of Chinese people, but also caked in a racism so deep that they can't even tell whether or not someone is from Thai, uh, you know, Thailand or from the Philippines or from North Korea, South Korea, China, or Japan, to the point that Asian people in general are under attack constantly by white settlers and racists here on Turtle Island because of a deep-seated racism that is endemic to U.S. development. It is seen in the Chinese Exclusion Act. It is seen in uh, Japanese internment. It is seen in, again, the U.S.'s involvement in the opium wars and putting down the Boxer Rebellion. And also, it is a general anti-Asian uh, uh, project 
that similar to the anti-Russian projects, the anti-Latino projects, the anti-African projects, and, uh, you know, the essentially anti-anyone but the U.S. projects that the U.S. has developed for the last, you know, 300 years almost, has been uh, caked in racism so deep that, again, they can't even necessarily uh, tell folks apart from one another. It all just kind of grows into this one anti-non-whiteness, right? But in looking at the Beijing Olympics, the U.S.'s diplomatic boycott, um, their continued uh, racial slandering, uh, and uh, propaganda that's on uh, programs like MSNBC, um, Fox News, and plenty of other places. It is very clear when a government and a state, and for those who don't know, because I use this term pretty commonly, state is an organized apparatus or machine for the oppression of one class by another. I'm not talking about states like North Carolina or Texas. I'm talking about like the state, the military, the police, the education system, the media, the government, the economy, and all the other forms that uh, are used by the ruling class to oppress the working and exploited class. Um, So anyways, if you look at how a although declining, still the largest military power, the largest economy by far, um, the most, uh, quote, developed nation that is, you know, the United States of America, having to spend so much time, money, energy, and effort on, you know, these anti-China, anti-Russian programs, sentiments, projects, and, uh, foundations, it's clear that what China is, what Russia is, and what other nations like Nicaragua or Cuba or Vietnam or North Korea all pose a real threat to the status quo and the ruling system that exists here on Turtle Island. Capitalism and imperialism are not long for this world. And so the capitalists and imperialists are going down fighting. Now, the Chinese people have had revolutions. Well, I should say a revolution that has continued through because that's the way that we want to look at it. Revolution is not an act. Revolution is not a a fell swooped. Revolution is not simply an inter uh, or an insurrection. Revolution is a process. Revolution uh, it, it constitutes an entire uh, transitionary epoch. Right. Um, I'm reading the proletarian revolution and the renegade Kautsky once again. And if I can quick here read a couple quotes from this, I think it, it connects decently with the point I'm trying to make, and then we will uh, get back to our regularly scheduled program. But Let me see here. And, uh, you know, the reality also of the supposed democracy that the United States says that it has, that China doesn't, is a clear lie to anyone who lives in the United States, uh, especially anyone who lives in the United States as a non-white, non-male person. So there's a few quotes here about democracy, which I would like to point out. Uh, And then we will make our way to a quote or two about a revolution. So the more developed, uh, this is from page 20 on the proletarian revolution in the renegade Kowski. The more developed a democracy is, the the more imminent are pogroms or pogroms, which were... um, essentially events where people in Russia and other, you know, nations across the world uh, have mob violence against ethnic or national minorities. We have pogroms and have had pogroms here in the United States. We just don't call them that. We call them lynch mobs, right? And many other things exist too. 
um, mass shootings and stuff like that. Anyways, so going back here, the more developed a democracy is, the more imminent are pogroms or civil war in connection with any profound political divergence, which is dangerous to the bourgeoisie. On page 21, Lenin goes on to say the more highly democracy is developed, the more the bourgeois, the bourgeois parliaments are subjected to the stock exchange and the bankers. On page uh, 21, he also says, even the most bourgeois democratic state, or even in the most bourgeois democratic state, the oppressed masses at every step can encounter the crying contradiction between the formal equality proclaimed by the democracy of the capitalists and the thousands of real limitations and subterfuges which in turn protect the, or excuse me, and subterfuges which turn proletarians into wage slaves. It is precisely this contradiction that is opening the eyes of the masses to the rottenness, mendacity, and hypocrisy of capitalism. Now, in talking about revolution, in talking about democracy, and in talking about you know what needs to be done to resolve the contradictions between the ruling class, the working class, but also between the members of the working class themselves can be found here in a few of these quotes. So first and foremost, uh, the question has to be asked, can there be equality between exploiters and exploited? So long as there are exploiters, this is page 27, so long as there are exploiters who rule the majority, the exploited, the democratic state must inevitably be democracy for the exploiters. A state of exploited must fundamentally differ from such a state. Again, state as an organized machine of violence by one oppress or oppressing one class by another. Anyways, it must be a democracy for the exploited and a means of suppressing the exploiters. And the suppression of a class means inequality for that class its exclusion from democracy page 29 quote why do we need a dictatorship when we have a majority marx and engels explain in order to break down the resistance of the bourgeoisie in order to inspire reactionaries with fear in order to maintain the authority of the armed people against the bourgeoisie and in order, in order that uh, the proletariat may by force hold down its adversaries. And then I wanted to put this quote on there and then I'll finish my conversation because I'm at work now and I do need to step away. Um, so on page 30, Lenin goes on to say, quote, but except in a very rare and special case, the exploiters cannot be destroyed in one stroke. It is impossible to expropriate all the landlords and the capitalists of a country of any size. Furthermore, expropriation alone, as a legal or political act, does not settle the matter by a long way because it is necessary to depose the landlords and capitalists in actual point, to replace their management of factories and the estates by a different management, workers' management, in actual fact. There can be no equality between the exploiters and the exploited, the majority of whom, in the most advanced and most democratic bourgeois republics, are downtrodden, backward, ignorant, intimidated, and disunited. Sorry, typing in the code for this safe here. <laughs> uh, finishing the quote, For a long time after the revolution, the exploiters inevitably continue to enjoy a number of political advantages. If the exploiters are defeated in only one country, they, the exploiters, still remain stronger than the exploited. For the international connections of the exploiters are enormous. So, okay, China, right? If you don't like it, you don't like their socialist project, you don't think that because, 
you know, they participate in market capitalism and global trade and everything. And, you know, they uh, do deals with uh, countries that are, you know, and by any case, you know, not doing good things. Um, if you sit here and think, okay, this is not socialism. This is capitalism. This is not a socialist project. These people are being, you know, this is the same thing as imperialism. Um, I think you need to take a step back and, uh, you know, as nicely as I can say it, um, put the dogmatism aside for some reality, which is uh, the Chinese people since the mid 1880s have been, you know, having to deal with not only U.S. imperialism, but British imperialism, Japanese imperialism, and imperialisms of many kind. Now, not only have they had to deal with that, they've had to deal with feudalism, they've had to deal with uh, enslavery, they've had to deal with uh, sexual trafficking, they've had to deal with constant war, they've had to deal with constant, uh, you know, essentially, I don't know if I would, I think, yeah, it'd be described as colonization, uh, their, you know, labor forces and their resources, their land, and their people being used uh, and exploited for the benefit of, you know, imperial nations. Um, all, you know, for hundreds of years before they were even able to run their own government. So if you and I know today, right, that it doesn't matter if it's Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter if it's conservative or liberal uh, politicians, politicians are politicians are politicians. And we must remember that when they are called representatives, what class is actually in charge of the government? Because when we hear them called representatives, we often think those are our representatives. But who out of all of us do the lobbyists and the politicians, the wealthy millionaires in the Senate and in the Congress, the inside traders and the corrupt judges, which of them represents you and I? Which of these elected officials, these quote representatives, truly represents the interests, needs, and wants of the masses? I would say none of them. And that is because they are there intentionally as representatives of the ruling class. It's nine o'clock. Technically, I got to open. There's no customers here yet. So let's finish on this one, you know, big moment here. What's going on in China and what's going on in the South China Sea is imperialism. We have to understand that the Chinese government is not structured in a way that we often can understand in the United States. So we have to spend a lot of time in history and learning about what's going on in this country, what has been going on, in order to actually have any kind of reason to even be, you know, sitting here thinking maybe the government is not actually doing what it's saying. But in fact, we take our understanding in Sinophobia and an ahistorical understanding of the way in which the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people have been able to develop their re revolution. And on top of all of that, right, on top of all of that, we do not even so much as ignore and put aside the propaganda being pushed by the United States and other imperialist nations. We, in fact, align with it in some way, whether intentionally or not, and end up pushing those narratives. But really, really, folks, what is it that the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government is doing that you don't like? Investigate that. Look further. Decide whether or not you really have enough information and understanding to take that analysis and put it out there. Because you know, you might think you understand what is going on in China, but I guarantee you, you fucking don't. Want to know why? Because you're not in China. You're not a part of the Chinese Communist Party. There's over 100 million Chinese people who are a part of the Communist Party. And you think that you sitting in your room doing whatever it is you're doing, 
going to your little meetings, you know, doing whatever it is that we're doing here, right? I've done this myself. I've spoke out about the Chinese Communist Party before. And yet, how is it that I think I know what the fuck I'm talking about? I've never built a fucking revolution. I've never been in a communist party. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So, to finish off, the growing conflicts and uh, imperialism by the U.S. Empire and the United Nations, the European Union, and other capitalist imperialist countries has to be put to a stop. The only way it can be put to a stop is by the proletarian, the working and exploited class coming together, organizing itself, mobilizing the masses, giving them the power and the knowledge and the tools needed to emancipate themselves from this enslavement, from these forms of oppression and exploitation. And then we build ourselves a state, a government, an administration, and a society ran by and operated for the benefit of and the actual participation by the working, exploited, and oppressed people themselves. At the end of the day, we have to understand that this is qualitatively different than the state under capitalism and imperialism, where the rule of the minority over the majority, the rule of the exploiters over the exploited, is the foundation. It is inherently different and cannot be understood in the same way as the rule of the formerly exploited over the formerly exploiting. Anyways, folks, I hope you're well. I hope you are healthy, staying safe, staying sane. Um, Please reach out again in defense of liberation at gmail.com. Let me know uh, what you're doing. Let me know how I can connect. Let me know groups to hit up, organizations to join. Look out for the Troika Collective. Look at what's happening in Puerto Rico. Uh, the uh, and Ken people rising up once again, as they always do. The teachers, the workers demanding uh, living wage, demanding lower energy prices, demanding food prices come down. Check out also what the Red Condor Collective and uh, the Red Nation movement are doing. Check out what... Um, Uh, Black Alliance for Peace is doing, um, hoodcommunist.org, great site to read, check out People's Dispatch, Kawasachi News, um, trying to hit up all the homies. Yeah, man, check out Anticonquista and like, broaden your understanding of Marxism outside of Europe and North America, please. Uh, Read Walter Rodney, read Kwame Ture, um, read Huey P. Newton. You know, read Patrice Lumumba, read Emilcar Cabral, read Kim Il-sun, read uh, Jose Carlos uh, Mariategui, uh, read, you know, uh, Jose Marti, read Che Guevara, read Fidel Castro, um, read about uh, organizations and activists that are fighting right now. And if you can find their work, get connected with it and get connected with them. Um, we need internationalist organizations and internationalist ties being built today. So anyways, folks, long live the revolution. We'll see you next time. Peace.